Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. We are in session 17 of our walk through the Bible in a year. Today we're looking at 2 Kings chapters 9 through 14. Unfortunately, we're covering the death of Elisha. This is an interesting part of the book because it's here that we see the end of one prophet and the rise of a multitude of others. But before we get into that, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we come to your house to magnify your name to learn more about your word, and to learn more about our place in your kingdom. So help us now always to uh, take note of your wisdom, to better discern our will, and to know your ways, to learn from both the glories and the mistakes of the past, so that we might be better conformed to the image of your Son. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So getting into it a little bit, we're approaching the latter half of Second Kings, approaching the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. What I really want you to pay attention to is that in these chapters from 9 to 17, we're only going to get up to about, if I remember correctly, 13 this evening. But this is the time when we also see the call of the prophets Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. They will occur in concert with the chapters that we're covering today. Once Elisha, who has been the star of the show in 2 Kings, passes on, these prophets and the books that bear their name will come into prominence. Also, Isaiah, who history tells us, or who rather tradition tells us, is one of the compilers of this very book. Coming up from where we left off last Wednesday, there are, from chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Kings, there are a bunch of, of changing thrones in the Canaan region. First, Haziel murders Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, or Syria in some of your translations, and becomes the king of that area. Jehoshaphat of Judah dies, leaving Jehoram as king over Judah, and he only reigns eight years before he passes. And after he passes, Ahaziah becomes the king in Judah, but he only lasts for one year. Because when he becomes king, within that first year, uh, he and Jehoram, king of Israel, they go up to fight Aziel in the, the land of the Arameans. And in that conflict, the king of Israel is severely wounded and they return back to the Jezreel Valley and to a, a second palace that has been built there by King Ahab. One of the prophets, one of the sons of the prophets under Elisha, goes into the Jezreel region just north of the city that bears that name and anoints one of the generals of Israel, Jehu, as king with the orders that he is to eliminate the rest of Ahab's dynasty. This is a really funny scene because the, the, one of the sons of the prophet, again, he's commissioned by Elisha to go to Jehu, one of the generals of Israel, to pour a flask of oil over his head and then run the second that he completes that task. And he, Jehu walks out of the building on a portico of bare steps 
and his, the sub-commanders, his subordinates, ask him, what in the world did that maniac want? And at first Jehu denies what's going on, but then he admits it because I guess he's, according to my commentaries, he's afraid that he's going to be accused of treason. But instead of, instead of arresting him, they take off their cloaks and on the steps they make a makeshift throne for him. And they seat him there and declare him king over Israel. Why is that important to us Christians? Because a very similar scene happened on Palm Sunday when the disciples took off their cloaks. Remember, in this culture, interwoven into your cloak, your mantle, is a pattern which identifies your family, your tribe, your personal authority over your household. And by putting that underneath a human being, you're basically declaring that person above you in authority. Jehu is demonstrating here for us, the leaders, later on, what it means in this culture for someone to willingly take off their cloak and seat it under you. Effectively, they're enthroning him as king over Israel. Jehu then proceeds to, to he drives his chariots and his, uh, his subordinates into Jezreel towards the second palace. And the king of Israel sends dispatches to him. Do you come in peace or do you come in war? To which Jehu replies, what do you have to do with peace? Get behind me. And the soldiers fall in line. This happens twice. And finally, the king of Israel himself asks, who's coming up? And uh, the watchman says, it has to be Jehu, but because no one else drives that recklessly. No one else drives like a maniac that way. The king of Israel at the time, Jerem, goes out to meet him. Do you come as a friend? And Jehu condemns him in the name of the God of Israel. And King Joram turns his chariot around, drives as hard as he can back to the, to the shelter of the palace. And Jehu nails him with an arrow right between his shoulder blades. It pierces his heart and he dies. Ironically, remember that Naboth's vineyard, the vineyard that uh, Jezebel had killed for, is in this very area. In fact, when King Joram goes down, it's right in the, the vegetable garden that had been Naboth's vineyard. So Jehu asks his guards, just throw him over and let this justice be done just as God had foretold. So King Joram is just thrown into Naboth's vineyard. And Ahaziah of Judah, who was the sister, uh, excuse me, who was the brother-in-law of King Joram of Israel, Remember, he had married his sister. He had married the, the daughter of Jezebel. He tries to escape, but given that he is a relative of this very dynasty, Jehu sends forth his soldiers after the king of Judah, and an arrow finds its way to King Ahaziah as well. He dies and is brought back to Jerusalem for burial. So Jehu returns to the, the second palace at Jezreel, and Jezebel hearing that she's coming out, dolls herself up, if, if I can use that phrase. She puts makeup on, she fixes her hair, and she calls out from a windowed balcony and basically says, Hello, Jehu, you traitor. You, um, and she calls him the Unimri. Uh, she calls him after one of the former kings of Israel who only lasted, I believe it was a few days, after he himself had committed a coup. And he, she does this to stab him to the quick. 
Now, my commentary split in two different directions. The first direction says that basically she was trying to appear seductive before him, to try to coerce him into, uh, well, being seduced by her, I'll put it that way. And the other side says that no, she was just trying to present herself with as much dignity as she could because she is a queen regent, well, a queen consort. She is the daughter of a king. In either way, she yells at him from out the palace. And Jehu yells up, who is for me? And a couple of eunuchs stick their head out of the similar window and, and he calls them to cast her out. So they grab. <laughs> now imagine this. She's over the palace for all intents and purposes. She is their manager. She is who they are sworn to protect. And Jehu, the general, says, if you're on my side, cast her out. And without missing a beat, they grab the queen of Israel and they throw her out the window. And she falls to her death as Jehu and his men march and ride horses over top of her body. They crown him king of Israel. They have a feast. And I guess he finally comes to a realization of the, the importance of this event. And he asks some of his servants to go out to her and to give her a proper burial. But by the time they get there, her body has been consumed by scavengers, by either dogs or jackals or wolves, depending on your translation. In either way, there isn't enough left of her to bury. And it comes to pass that which was foretold by the prophets. So Jehu is, is marching south to Samaria, and he sends word ahead of him to the governors of the region who are fostering or, or raising the children of Ahab, that whichever one of them they deem to be the strongest and most worthy, he's basically challenging the children of Ahab, the children left of him, and there's about 70 descendants left. He is challenging them to combat, basically to trial by combat. Whoever is strong, whoever is worthy, send them to me. And if you dare, let them be king over Israel. And the governors declare their loyalty to Jehu instead. And in a very macabre scene, they actually decapitate the 70 surviving descendants of Ahab and send their heads to Samaria. All the remaining royal officials left in the city who are still loyal to Ahab are summarily executed. And also a political envoy from Judah about 42 people that didn't know that all this had transpired. They were just there to pay homage to the king and to uh, try to foster good relationships between Jerusalem in the south and uh, Samaria in the north. They end up getting slaughtered, 42 of them. So Jehu takes Samaria. He feigns Baal worship. Tell the priests of Baal, as Ahab worshipped Baal a little, Jehu will worship him much. And he enters the city and he asks, he goes to the temple of Baal. He asks all of the prophets of Baal that are left, get into your ceremonial robes and cast out of the temple anybody that feigns worship for that Israel God person. And then in secret, he goes back and he tells all of his guards and his soldiers, don't let any true Israelites, don't let anyone who worships the God of Israel in and don't let any Baal worshipers out. And he has them marked. They're wearing their ceremonial robes. They're wearing their attire so that they're all basically wearing bullseyes on themselves. And as he is heeding the words of the prophet that anointed him, 
once all of the people who worship Baal are there and they're beginning their sacrifice, he basically calls them to a feast. Let's have a sacrifice. Remember, in idol worship, idol worship is about the pleasing of the human, not the pleasing of the God. More often than not, you, you sacrifice an animal, you barbecue the animal, and you have a giant festival where there's dancing and, and revelry and all that stuff. It's all about the fun of worship, and it's not truly about anything divine. It's about placating the flesh. So they're dancing, they're celebrating, they've sacrificed the bull, they've barbecued it, they're ready for their festival, and Jehu calls an attack from the soldiers of Israel to, dry, to, to put to the sword all the priests of Baal, all the prophets of Baal, and all the worshipers of Baal. They cast down the stone of Baal, and they destroy the temple, and they end, at least for this season, the worship of Baal in Israel. Unfortunately, he doesn't completely reverse the evil that was done by his forerunner, Jeroboam I. When you read in these books and you hear of the sin of Jeroboam or you hear of the, the um, fault of Jeroboam, however your translation reads it, the sin of Jeroboam in this place is the creation of idol worship and claiming that it's of God, setting the two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Jeshu maintained the state-run, king-dictated, not God-dictated religion. And as such, he is still considered a king who was at fault in the eyes of God. Because of this, the Arameans continue to annex territory out from and under Israel, east of the Jordan River. Nevertheless, Jehu was allowed by God to reign for 28 years, and he was promised a dynasty that would last to the fourth generation. Jehoahaz becomes king after Jehu, and Israel descends once again into, uh, into idolatry. Haziel, remember, who's the king of the Arameans at this time, decimates the Israeli military. And Jehoahaz repents. He calls back upon the name of the Lord. And God sends a deliverer to rescue what's left of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, this rescuer, this deliverer, is not named in the Bible. So there are some commentators that believe that it was his crown prince, Jehoash, or his son, Jehoahaz's grandson, the person that would become Jeroboam II, who was the king during the time of the prophet Amos. The Israeli monarchy is insane. We start with the first Jeroboam, the person who splits the kingdom. He has a son named Nabdab, who gets murdered after only a year. Basha, the murderer, becomes king. He dies of natural causes, but his son Eliah gets murdered by one of his generals named Zimri. And he only lasted for a year. Zimri lasts all of seven days. That's what Jezebel was using as her jab. Now, you Zimri, you traitor, your fate will be just like his. You'll, you won't last a week. That's what effectively she was saying. He died by suicide by fire. Tibri, another person that was in on the coup that ended the, the previous uh, dynasty, was murdered by soldiers of the real ringleader, a guy named Omri, who was this, the, dad, uh, the father of Ahab. Omri actually dies of natural causes, but he doesn't have a very long reign either, as you can see. Incidentally, if you're not used to reading uh, years in B.C., I had to pause because a couple of people had asked me about the dates. Why do they run backwards? 
Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell it. Before Christ, the years run backwards. So Omri's reign, for instance, is 885 years before Christ. It lasted to 874 years before Christ. So the clock before Christ runs backwards up until you get to the year that Jesus was born, and that becomes Anno Domini 1, the year of our Lord 1, and then from that point on, the numbers go up. So hopefully that explains it. Omri was the father of Ahab, who died in battle. He had the longest and probably the most prosperous reign of any of them, and he was, quite frankly, the worst of the king. Ahaziah fell through his roof after only a year and died. He was cursed by the prophet Elisha. Joram, we just read about, he was killed by Jehu, and Jehu is now the king. So we've gone through six dynasties of the same nation. Guess how many the land of Judah has had in the same amount of time? One. The family of David still reigns in Jerusalem. Now, unfortunately, we get to one of the darkest chapters in Jerusalem's history, in the, the Judah, the southern kingdom, the murders of Queen Ataliah. Now, Ataliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She was the queen consort of Jeroam, and she was the mother of Ahaziah. When Jehoram was the king of Judah, she convinced, or it's heavily implied rather, that she convinces him to murder all of his brothers so there was no rivalry to the throne. Remember, this is the daughter of Jezebel. She's the queen mother of Ahaziah, who was killed by, Ye uh, by Jehu. And then she captures the throne for herself. She becomes what we would deem today a queen regent in 841 BC. And as queen regent, she seizes the throne and she orders the execution of all of her children. All of her children and grandchildren, every remaining descendant of David is to die. Why is that significant for those of us who are Christians? What was the enemy trying to do in this very dark chapter of Israel's history or Judah's history? He was trying to stamp out the family that had been promised that the Messiah would come from them. She was trying to destroy the house of David and she almost succeeded only one prince was left. Ahaziah's sister, Jehosheba, rescues her nephew, Prince Jehoash. She hides him in one of the bedrooms of the palace during the purge, and then she smuggles him with uh, her husband, the high priest of the day, Jehoiada. She smuggles him to the temple where he's kept safe for six years in the temple precincts. And he is raised by the high priest in the temple during all that time and instructed in the ways of God. And during her six-year reign, Adaliah institutes Baal worship in Jerusalem. A temple to Baal is built in the holy city. Part of Solomon's temple is dismantled to build this thing. A lot of things from the temple are sequestered away from it, some of the furnishings, and, and given to the Baal temple. Jehoiada, the high priest, very quickly starts to covenant with members, with high officials in the army and the temple and the palace guards. Remember that the temple guards and the palace guards also come from the tribe of Levi. The Praetorian guard for the royal family is from the tribe of Levi. They are exempted from military service as far as the, the army is concerned, 
but they are fierce, loyal guards, especially to the family of David. So Jehoiada covenants with these military officials, and when the prince is seven years old, he gives the prince a copy of the Torah, a copy of the covenant. He institutes a covenant between the prince, the priesthood, and the people, and he proclaims Jehoash as king over Israel at the temple and anoints him in front of the citizens of Jerusalem. And they celebrate, and Ataliah from the palace hears the noise, and she runs to the temple, and she yells treason and rends her clothes. But all of Jerusalem has accepted Jehoash as the king. So Adaliah as the usurper, as the person who ironically called out treason, who is guilty of treason herself, is removed from the temple grounds and is executed for her crimes. And the temple of Baal is removed and destroyed. Now, shortly thereafter, the king grows up. And as long as the high priest, who was his surrogate father, is still around, he remains very loyal to the way of God. The people rededicate themselves to him. They execute the priests of Baal. It's important to note that here, under Queen Adaliah, the, the worship of the Baals, the worship of the Canaanite gods, was never very popular in Jerusalem up until this point. So this is the only time where that level of idolatry has entered into the holy city under her six-year reign. But now the people have once again called the family of David as the royal family and accepted them as king. Jehoash of Judah, just like many Old Testament heroes, he starts extremely well, but unfortunately he doesn't finish very well. His reign lasts from around 835 to 796 B.C. Again, he's the only surviving son of Ahaziah, reigned from age 7. He repaired the Temple of Solomon after both the wear and tear of having stood for so long and for the destruction caused by the, the construction of the Baal Temple. He instituted temple contributions, both voluntary and insisted that the temple taxes went back towards the maintenance of the temple. He is responsible for collecting a lot of private contributions. And when the priests themselves wouldn't take care of the temple, when they wanted to hoard the treasury for themselves and not the house of God, he administrated the temple reconstruction and contracted workers on behalf of the priests. Unfortunately, once Jehoiada the priest passed away, he stopped listening to the priests, including his own surrogate brother, Zechariah, the high priest of Judah. And he started listening to his governors. He divorced himself from the sacred and instead started giving ear to the political. He executed Zechariah for speaking against him. You can find that in Second uh, Chronicles. He began worshiping and encouraging the worship of Asherah the fertility goddess. And after he fell into idolatry, Judah was attacked repeatedly by Aram. Now, something that I really want to emphasize here. Some of your translations say Aram and the Arameans. Some of your translations say Syria and the Syrians. They're the same people for all intents and purposes, at least uh, ethnically. We'll get into a bit more of that in just a second. But the king ended up bribing Haziel, who's still the king of the Arame Arameans at this time, with gold from both his palace 
and the temple that he just finished reconstructing. Ultimately, he was assassinated by his court officials. Some link that directly to his murder of Zechariah the priest. And his son, Amaziah, becomes, becomes king over Judah. Incidentally, Jehoash's uncle becomes a prophet named Amos, A-M-O-Z, in English to kind of differentiate him from A-M-O-S. Amos, A-M-O-Z, per rabbinic tradition, is the father of the prophet Isaiah. We have talked about Jehu. He ends up dying of natural causes. Jehoahaz also is allowed to reign and dies from natural causes. And now we get to King Jehoash of Israel. Bear in mind that when you're reading this through the year, the Bible more often than not will tell you Jehoash of Israel or Jehoash of Judah. It will make that distinction. But right now, we're talking about the king over Israel. He was the son of Jehoahaz, the grandson of Jehu. He reigned from 798 to 782 B.C. Outwardly, he worshipped God. He was uh, very much a wishy-washy type of person as far as his dedication to the God of Israel is concerned because he continued as with the rest of them. There's something about the state-run religion of Jeroboam I. There's something about having that kind of control over your people, both politically and from the sacred as well, that is addictive to these kings and they can never shake it. All the way up until the Assyrian exile, the Assyrian diaspora, every king over Israel is very, very firm about wanting to keep this form of idolatry, the golden calf worship. He endured many attacks as a result of God's scorn by Haziel, the king of Aram. But he turns around like his grandfather did. And in fact, he comes to Elisha. He has developed a very deep and connected relationship with the prophet. Even though he won't in the state-run religion, he still seems to have this off-again, on-again relationship with a prophet. And he runs to the prophet's side as he is sick to death. And he weeps over Elisha in his presence. He even refers to him as, oh, my father, my father. Not only that, but he repeats the same words that Elisha had said when Elijah was departing. Oh, my father, my father, I see the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. He pays him both the compliment of, you are a man of God after the pattern of Elijah, and also, you are the strength of Israel. And then there's this very confusing scene. When I first read the Bible through a year, I was reading it in the King James, and it's probably the same in all translations. I reread it in both the English Standard, the uh, Christian Standard, and the NIV that we use as our pew Bible. Elisha tries to give him one last ray of hope. Take up your bow and your arrow. Fire out that window. And he fires and it goes to the east. You will put down the king of Assyria. Now take your arrows and strike the ground. Some say that he uh, just grabbed a stack of arrows out of his quiver, picked them up and struck them against the ground like a hammer. Others say that he started firing them at the ground. Whichever way you choose to believe, I choose the latter. Uh, 
because when he shot them, he only shot three. And Elijah gets mad. He gets very mad. If you only, you only shot three, you only struck the ground three times. If you had struck them five or six times, not God would have given you all of these victories. As, as it stands, he'll only give you three. That is not enough. Syria will still rise. If you had shot the entire quiver, in other words, Assyria would be destroyed. As it is, you will only stay them back for a time. And then the prophet himself lays his hand over, over the kings, symbolizing that your strength comes from God. But you will only defeat the Arameans three times, which is not enough. You will be able to retake the territory of Israel, but not enough for a lasting victory. And the prophet dies and is buried with honor. Sometime thereafter, in the season when the Moabites are sending raiding parties into the land of Israel, another person dies. And his pallbearers are running him to this tomb so they can bury him and get back to the safety of home, back behind the city walls. So basically, seeing the Moabites come with their raiding party, seeing their horses stampede across, bows and swords in hand, they take this person that just died as pallbearers, they run him to the grave site, they open the tomb, they throw the body in, and they close it, or they start to close it back and run away. When the body of the person who had just died touches the bones of Elisha and he springs back to life and he stands. Elisha's bones, the power of God still in the prophet, resurrects a dead man. To kind of show you why the prophet was upset, number one, there are some that claim that the reason that he didn't strike the ground more than just the three times is that he didn't understand the prophet's instruction, that he just didn't know. Others claim that he had this idea that there's no way that God would, would pour out as much grace as is required. So he just stopped firing. In either event, one of the things that the prophet was trying to tell him is if you had fired the arrows, if you had portrayed the prophetic image the same way that Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and he said, hit it. If you had just fulfilled the prophetic image, God would have given you enough victories to wipe out this problem before it became this much of a problem. As such, Assyria would only be stayed back for a time and that would rise to conquer everything from Babylon in the east to Egypt in the West. He returns to Samaria. So King Amaziah of Judah, uh, Edom had been a vassal state that had been in uprise, and Amaziah was able to subdue it. It became a vassal state under Judah yet again. But he became arrogant over his victories. And again, uh, Jehoash had just been blessed by a prophet. Even though the prophet got angry, he had amassed a, a great military fortress, a great military power. He had become quite prosperous, both militarily and economically. 
Uh, and Judah is trying to gain some territory on the northern kingdom. Not only that, but King Amaziah, when he carted idols out of Edom, he started worshiping those very idols. A king of David starts laying prostrate before the idols of foreign gods, and he challenges Israel. And King Jehoash, to his credit, he actually issued a warning back to the southern kingdom. King Jehoash, in 2 Kings chapter 14, starting with verse 9, King Jehoash of Israel sent word to King Amaziah of Judah, saying, The thistle in Lebanon once sent a message to the cedar in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And then a wild animal in Lebanon, a boar, a wild boar in some of your translations, passed by and trampled the thistle. Uh, to translate into modern times in America, it's basically like saying that the dandelion once tried to threaten a redwood. You have indeed defeated Edom, and you've become overconfident or arrogant. Enjoy your glory and stay at home. Why should you stir up such trouble that you will fall and you and Judah with you? Unfortunately, he did go to war. Jehoash not only defeat, uh, defended Israel, but he pursued the invading Judah army back into southern territory. And at a city called Beth Shemesh, which is just a little bit to the west of Jerusalem, the uh, Judean military was, a, uh, was nearly obliterated. He goes on to sack Jerusalem and loot both the temple and the royal palace. And just to make sure that Judah would remain in line, he takes a lot of captives hostage from the royal family, from the royal officials, to ensure good conduct. Jehoash, unfortunately, died shortly after the victory. Amaziah in the south would live for another 15 years, but for those 15 years he would remain a vassal king under the northern kingdom. The first time that the tables had truly turned. And because of his failures, he was ultimately assassinated by his officials. So there are two successors that we need to know about in preparation for the next study. The first one is the king that takes over in the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of Amos the prophet, Jeroboam II. He maintained the state religion, the golden calf religion. He also recovered a great deal of lost territory along the borderlands. He enjoyed the military prosperity and the economic prosperity left to him by his father. In fact, he is credited as being the golden age of the northern kingdom, his reign. He also finally halted the marauders that were coming from the north in Syria. Azariah, in some of your translations, it's, his name is actually spelled Uzziah, of Judah later comes to power. He was crowned at age 18 after the, the coup d'etat of his father. And for a while he was actually co-regent with him. He's credited with recovering and rebuilding the city of Eliath from Israel. And we'll pick up from that later next week. In the meantime, I'd like for you to remember to get together with your groups. And as you're sharing your highlights, I'd like you to consider these questions. What is the foundational sin? Now, what do I mean by that? We often think of sin as the thing that we do. It's the physical action we commit. But it's not that way.
Behind every action there is a thought, by every thought there is a motivation. And Jesus Himself goes out of His way in the Sermon on the Mount to say that our motivations themselves can be sin. You hear it said not to, be, not, uh, not to commit murder, but I tell you, whosoever has hatred commits murder where? In his own heart. So the motivation itself is a sin. What is the foundational sin? What is the ultimate motivating factor that gives birth to the sin that gives birth to other sins? There is a single one. I want you to th riddle that out for yourselves. Another question I want you to consider as we found out with the king of Judah, can worldly success be a spiritual trap? What does the world consider successful? And if you enter into a period of success, can the enemy use that as a spiritual trap? Because remember, all the way through the books of the kings so far and into the books of Samuels, we've learned that there's a lot of kings that start very well, but they end poorly. Lastly, what can the believer do? What disciplines can we engage in practice to avoid springing that trap? There's nothing worse than a sore winner. It can be a winner academically. It can be a winner financially. It can be a winner professionally. What can the believer do to avoid getting stuck in that trap? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to learn more about your word. And I pray that you would use this time as well as the time that we spend with our brothers and sisters in Christ, either at the restaurant, either on the phone line, either at the, the coffee table, wherever the case may be. Use this time with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that iron might truly sharpen iron and that you would mold us and shape us, Lord, as we dedicate not only this time, but ourselves as well into your hands without reservation. And it's in the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.